Well, now we're going to turn to the Word of God as we hear it from, from Scripture. You know, this morning we're going to start a new sermon series, a sermon series that we're calling, Though I Walk Through the Valley of the Shadow. Now, all this month we're going to be exploring, exploring the things that we have lost in the last six months. We're going to take the time to, to grieve and feel the sadness at, at all of the trauma that we've been through and all of the destruction that we've witnessed through the months of this pandemic. And we're going to do that because we believe that sometimes as we walk through the darkest valley, we see the light most clearly and feel God's presence most closely. Now, each week during this sermon series, we're going to hear a reading from the Old Testament book of Lamentations. This week, Mason is going to start us off. And so I invite you to listen for God's voice as Mason shares with us the very first verse of the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Hello from Marquette. For today's scripture reading, we have Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. It reads, How lonely sits the city that was once full of people. How like a widow she has become. She was a she that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in March of this year, I got called in to help out with a funeral service. The service wasn't for a court streeter. It was one of those friend of a friend of a friend situations. I didn't know the woman who had died, but I ended up being glad that the family had called and invited me to be part of the service. Because as we were getting ready for this funeral, I got to hear a, a wonderful story. I got to hear a love story. So the woman who died was named Violet. When she was a girl, she knew a boy named James, and Violet's life and James's life changed forever when James got called away into military service. He was sent off to fight in the Second World War, and when James came back from the war, he was changed. He was in a wheelchair. He had been injured in an explosion and was paralyzed from the waist down. And James didn't know what his life was going to be like. He didn't know if he would ever meet somebody special, if he would ever fall in love and get married. But that's exactly what happened. James and Violet reconnected. And they fell in love and they got married. And Violet knew when she walked down the aisle to where James was waiting at the front of the church, she knew that part of their life together, for as long as they were together, was going to involve her helping him throughout the day, just to make it through the day. Now, Violet helped James in a lot of little ways. For the most part, James was very active and independent, but there were moments every day when he needed just a little bit of assistance from Violet. In the morning, the very first thing they would do is Violet would come around to the side of the bed and she would lift James out of bed and she would place him in his wheelchair. And James loved to mow the yard and so, Often at some point in the day, Violet would lift James up out of his wheelchair and she would place him on the top of the riding lawnmower and then she would tie him into the seat with a piece of rope and he would be off mowing the lawn for the rest of the afternoon. And often at the end of the day when he was finished mowing, she would lift him off of the riding lawnmower and she would set him in a lawn chair and then she would sit down beside him and they would watch the sun set and drink Pepsi together in the evening. As I was talking to Violet's family, I asked them a question. I said, were there ever times when it seemed like Violet was being worn down by the things that she did to take care of James? Did it ever seem like she was resentful or regretful? And the family, Violet's family said, oh no. 
They said, you never saw two people who were closer. You never saw two people who were more in love. As a matter of fact, Violet's family and James's family had a theory as to how it was they were able to remain so close for so many decades of marriage. They believed that all of those moments when Violet helped James, all of those moments when she wrapped her arms around him and he wrapped his arms around her, kept them together. They said sometimes people drift apart in a marriage. Sometimes one person will drift off in this direction and the other person will drift off in that direction. But Violet and James never got to do that because they were forced over and over again, day after day after day, to wrap their arms around each other, to embrace each other, to be physically close to one another. And Violet's family believed that all of those moments of physical closeness, all of those moments of touch, helped to keep them in love and kept them from drifting apart through all of the decades of their marriage. I loved that story. I was really looking forward to telling that story when everyone got together to celebrate Violet's life at the funeral home. But this was back in March. And it just happened to be the very week when everything in Michigan suddenly shut down. And so the day before the funeral service, I got a call from the funeral home saying, we're sorry, but it looks like the service isn't gonna happen this week. The governor has just locked everything down and we can't have the gatherings that we had scheduled. And then a couple hours later, I got another call from the funeral director saying, actually, well, the funeral is back on because we scheduled the service before the lockdown order came out. We're able to, to have the service after all, but we have to take some precautions. And so the next day when I arrived at the funeral home, the atmosphere there in the funeral home was anxious, intense. I had my really first really awkward moment when I reached out to shake the funeral director's hand and the funeral director reached out to shake my hand and then suddenly both of us simultaneously realized that that probably wasn't a good idea and we pulled our hands back. All of the people who came to celebrate Violet's life were seated in chairs that were spread out from each other, distance around this great big room. And as I was getting ready to begin the service, I looked out at all of those people who had come to remember Violet, all of her family and friends, and I realized that something really strange was happening there in the funeral home that day. As I looked out at all of those people, I realized that nobody was hugging. Nobody was embracing, nobody was pulling anyone in close, nobody was crying in someone else's shoulder. Nobody was doing all of the things that have happened at every other funeral I'd been a part of up until that point in my ministry. I think as I stood there at the funeral, in front of that, that chapel at the funeral home, looking out at all of those people who were keeping their distance from each other and not embracing each other, that was the moment when I started to get an inkling of just how difficult making it through this pandemic was going to be. Because as I stood there up at the front of the funeral parlor, getting ready to tell this story about two people whose lives were bound together by all of these moments of embrace and physical closeness, as I stood there about to tell Violet and James's story and looked out at all of these people who were not hugging and not embracing, that was the moment when I, I realized that we were about to lose a lot of people and a lot of things that we hold dear. And just at the moment when we were all going to experience a season of profound and overwhelming grief, we were also about to lose all of the very best tools that we have for making it through our sadness and working our way through that grief. It's hard to grieve properly when you can't give hugs. 
It's hard to grieve properly when you can't wrap your arms around somebody and pull them in close. It's hard to grieve properly when you can't go to the places where you feel closest to God. It is hard to grieve properly when you can't gather for a funeral luncheon in the church's fellowship hall and eat meatballs and church ham and cheesy potatoes with people who love you. It's hard to grieve properly when you can't be close to one another. In the last six months, we have experienced so much loss. And the question that I want to ask you this morning is, have you in the last six months taken the time to grieve? Have you allowed yourself to feel the sadness that is natural in a moment of such deep and overpowering loss? Or have you been putting off grieving? Have you been holding your sadness away at arm's length? And one of the things that I've learned in my years as a pastor is that we tend to not be very good at grieving, even in the best of times. I've learned that lots of people have their own strategies for keeping sadness away and, and putting off grieving. Now, some people avoid grieving and sadness by throwing themselves into busyness and distractions. Sometimes we say to ourselves, if I can just keep moving, if I just keep working, then my sadness won't be able to catch up with me. Some people put away sadness and grief by engaging in addictive behaviors. And yes, binging Netflix day after day after day counts as an addictive behavior. We have all of these strategies, all of these things that we do to keep ourselves from experiencing grief and feeling sadness. And science tells us, psychologists tell us that when we do that, when we push away our sadness, when we don't take the time to work through our grief, our sadness tends to come back in more hurtful and harmful ways. Psychologists tell us that sometimes when we don't take the time to grieve properly, our sadness begins to leak out in the form of anger. Suddenly we find that we're irritable and we keep getting angry over little things, sometimes over nothing at all. And psychologists tell us that when we don't take the time to properly grieve, sometimes our sadness manifests itself in the form of fear. We become anxious and defensive and paranoid. We, we're constantly watching out for any, anything that could possibly cause us pain because we're afraid that if we experience even one more ounce of pain, suddenly all of that sadness is going to come bursting out upon us like waters through a broken dam. And psychologists tell us that sometimes when we're trying to avoid sadness and grief, we slip into depression. And we're so afraid of experiencing sadness and pain that we stop feeling anything at all. And we stop feeling sadness, we stop feeling pain, but we also stop feeling joy at things that used to bring us joy. And we become numb to everyone and everything. We become apathetic. We lose our interest in life. Psychologists tell us that, that sadness and grief are normal and necessary human emotions, that, that bad things happen, hurtful and harmful things happen to us when we push away sadness and we don't take the time to work through our grief. Psychologists and scientists tell us that we need, we need to experience sadness and grief in our lives in order to begin to heal. Of course, we didn't need scientists to tell us that. People of faith have always known that sadness and grief are normal and natural and necessary human emotions. We believe that sadness and grief are 
part of the healing process. We believe that sadness and grief are part of our faith. Sadness and grief are part of our walk, our journey with God. We value sadness and grieving so deeply that in fact there is a, a whole book of the Bible dedicated to just feeling sadness and expressing grief. Now tucked away in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, we find this strange little book of Lamentations. Now the book of Lamentations is a book that we don't hear about very often. You almost never hear sermons from the book of Lamentations. And the reason for that is because the book of Lamentations is filled with strong and overpowering expressions of deep emotion, emotions like sadness and grief and pain. Now tradition tells us that the book of Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah in a moment of national disaster. Now the story goes that, that one day the city of Jerusalem was suddenly attacked by the mighty Babylonian army. And the Babylonians overwhelmed the city. They destroyed the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They burnt people's homes and palaces to the ground. The Babylonians even destroyed the temple, the house of God here on earth among God's people. And then when they were finished destroying the city, the Babylonians took many of the people of the city of Jerusalem captive. They carted them far away to the city of Babylon where they forced them to live as hostages and slaves. And the prophet Jeremiah was one of the people who was left behind in this ruined city. The story goes that the prophet Jeremiah began walking through the streets and the rubble of this, this devastated city. And as he looked around at all of this ruin and rubble and devastation, Jeremiah was overcome with this powerful surge of emotion. He was overcome with emotion so deep that it caused him to reach for a pen and start writing. And there in the streets of the city, there in the rubble of that broken city, the prophet Jeremiah didn't write, hey everybody, cheer up, it's all gonna be okay, God is gonna fix this, just hang on. Jeremiah didn't write words of easy comfort and hope for God's people. Instead, Jeremiah, when he began writing, began with these words. How lonely is the city that once was filled with people? How like a widow is the city that once was like a princess? There in the streets, there in the rubble, Jeremiah began writing his pain he started naming his sadness and the things that had been lost and destroyed. He started pouring out his grief in the form of poetry. He wrote five poems. And those five poems, those five odes to sadness and grief became the Book of Lamentations. And the Book of Lamentations now is there tucked away in the middle of the Bible to remind us that grief and sadness are natural and necessary emotions that they're the first step in our healing process. That if we avoid sadness and grief, then we're avoiding a gift that God wants to give us. That when we walk through our sadness and our grief, we begin to find, find a way forward through the pain and that the only way to get to that place is to walk through it. Now the prophet Jeremiah shares with us a deep wisdom in these five poems. He reminds us that sometimes the first step to healing is naming our, our sadness and our pain and the things that we have lost. And so that's what we're gonna do in this sermon series. 
Each Sunday in the month of October, we're going to take a moment on Sunday morning to experience the grief that maybe we've been putting off for the last six months. And we're gonna take a moment to, to name the things that we have lost, the pain and the sadness that we've been feeling. We're gonna take the time during the month of October to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And as we do, we're going to discover that in the valley of the shadow, sometimes in the darkness, that's when we can see the light most clearly. And we're gonna discover that it's in the valley of the shadow that we learn to hold the hand of God most tightly. And we're going to discover that as we walk through the valley, as we experience sadness and grief and pain, God walks beside us. And as long as we allow God to walk beside us, sadness and grief and darkness will never have the power to overwhelm us or destroy us. So each week during this sermon series, each week in October, we're going to hear a poem, a poem that was written by, by a different member of our Court Street Church family each week. And these poems are going to, to be written in the style of the prophet Jeremiah. These are going to be poems that talk about the things that we have lost, and the things that, that we have been grieving in the last six months. I'm gonna get us started this week with a poem that I wrote about the things that I've been grieving and the losses that I've been feeling the most deeply through the last six months. I've written this poem in the style of the prophet Jeremiah. In the book of Lamentations, four out of the five poems that Jeremiah writes are written in a style of poetry that was popular among the Hebrew poets thousands of years ago. Four of the five poems in the book of Lamentations are, are what we call acrostic poems. They're poems in which each line of the poem begins with the letter of the alphabet, starting at the beginning and working all the way through to the end of the alphabet. Now, I've written a poem this week that, that begins, in which each line begins with a, a different letter of the English alphabet, going from A to the letter V. I've used the first 22 letters of the English alphabet. I've done that for a couple of reasons. First, because the Hebrew alphabet only has 22 letters. And second, because it is really hard to find good words that begin with X. And so we're just not even gonna make our poets try to do that this month. And so now I wanna share with you this poem that I've written this week, a poem that talks about one of the losses that I've been feeling the most deeply, the loss of hugs and handshakes and physical closeness. And as you hear these words, I hope that you'll let a little bit of the sadness that I've been feeling to touch your heart. I hope that you'll allow yourself to to let in some of the grief that maybe you've been holding away for the last six months. And I hope that as you do that, you will discover that God is walking through your sadness with you, that God is shepherding you through your pain, and that God will not let you be overwhelmed. At the door before worship, we would embrace but now doorways are anxious places where we keep each other at arm's length and wait to hear good news from the contactless thermometer. Can you remember how Larry used to stand at the top of the stairs and say hello? Did we know how many people would never set foot in the building again when we closed everything down? Every time the phone rings, I hold my breath and prepare myself for news of death. Funerals for lifelong Methodists have to happen at the graveside without any V-door on the organ. 
Grieving happens at a distance. And we are so hungry for human contact that just seeing the top half of a familiar face has started to feel like a hug. How long are communion chalices and coffee mugs going to gather dust? I wouldn't even mind if you dipped your fingers in the cup if only we could move down the aisle and meet at the communion table again. Juice, a bottle of good Methodist grape juice has been fermenting in the church refrigerator for so long that we're going to have to give it to the Episcopalians. Kids used to parade in with the flags of many nations on World Communion Sunday. Last year we waited until the very last minute to put out the stands for all of those flags. Man, what I wouldn't give for a bit of that 1028 and we're running late type stress right now. Nate would be running around with keys in his hands, unlocking doors and checking closets. Organ music would rattle the windows and the choir would wonder if they should just go into worship without waiting for the preacher. Pastor Christie would reach over and fix my stole and remind me that no matter how worship goes, Jesus is still alive and we can never mess that up. Quick high fives from the ushers at the back door. And then we get going down the center aisle, pausing to touch a shoulder here and a shoulder there and to give thanks for the blessing of being together. Rest, Jesus says in the great north window. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Sometimes I find that rest when we lay down our burdens and take a deep breath. Then there are weeks when rest feels like a handshake and a hug and a hundred hellos. Uploading worship on Saturday is a lonely routine that seems to take all night. Vaccines, we pray, and joy, we pray, will come to us with the morning.